This week, there can be only one Highlander. This is Body Counts and Beer. And welcome to another edition of Body Counts and Beer. I am Mark Rosenthal. I am Patrick Bromley. I have deduced that I must be John Rooney. You are the Batman of this podcast. Look at you, <laughs> Mr. Detective over here. Ooh, la la. Well, guys, today we are talking about the 1986 classic, Highlander. There can be one. <laughs> only yes, one. There can only be one. Only one, yes. Uh, there were many Highlanders in this movie. I disagree with your premise. <laughs> Patrick, let me get your hot take on Highlander. I have never seen such a shittily constructed castle. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John, hot take on Highlander. This was probably the best music video movie that did not contain songs. <laughs> Mark, your hot take on Highlander. This is the movie that every single cocaine addict dreamt of during their night sweats. <laughs> That's what this is. So this movie came out in 1986. It's directed by a guy named Russell Mulcahy. He's primarily known before this for directing music videos. So he directed music videos for Duran Duran, Elton John, like every crazy Elton John video that came out in the 80s that clearly looked like it was made of a Versace windbreaker fucking a pile of cocaine. <laughs> And that pile of cocaine is blowing another pile of cocaine. You can thank Russell Mulcahy for that. He's responsible. You can't hear it over the podcast, but I'm saluting the memory of Russell Mulcahy. Still alive. (laughs) Doesn't matter. He's currently the executive producer and director of many episodes of the MTV series Teen Wolf. (laughs) The TV show that deigned to say werewolves aren't good at basketball, they should play lacrosse. Couple things you should know about this movie. So, there are five Highlander movies, live action movies. There's one anime movie. There was an animated series, a TV series, a spin off of the TV series, 10 books, two different comic books, and several video games all around Highlander. Uh, also, none of them were successful monetarily. <laughs> all the Highlander movies that came out lost money in the theater and yet somehow warranted their continued existence. For the same reason the sun rises and the stars are just holes in the curtain of the night. You know, it's shocking. <laughs> it is shocking that fencing enthusiasts who daydream about immortality just don't have a lot of cash to put out. <laughs> uh, so, the star of this movie is Christopher Lambert. When he was uh, uh, hired for this movie, it wasn't until after he'd signed his contract that they'd found out he didn't speak a lick of English. Uh, Here's some people who were up for that role. Mel Gibson. Nice. Patrick Swayze. Nice. Sting. Nice. (laughs) Michael Douglas. Nice. According to Hulk Hogan, Hulk Hogan was offered the role of Highlander, and he turned it down to focus on his wrestling. Are we sure that Hulk Hogan wasn't offered the role of the Spaniard played by Sean Connery? I mean, they are both orange-faced, so yes, that's possible. They are also both bald with ponytails. (laughs) Also true. Uh, Eventually, an actor was cast in the movie, Kurt Russell. Nice. Kurt Russell was signed on to be the Highlander 
until his girlfriend, Goldie Hawn, was like, you can't do this movie. <laughs> and he said, yeah, you're probably right, and bailed nice. at the last minute. People who were on to play the Ramirez part, which is Sean Connery, Clint Eastwood, Michael Caine, Gene Hackman, Peter O'Toole. Nice. People who were signed up could have played the Kurgan, Rucker Hauer, Nick Nolte, Roy Scheider. (laughs) People to play the Brenda, the female lead, Sigourney Weaver, Glenn Close, Diane Lane, Demi Moore, Sean Young. <laughs> Guys, understand, there is a crazy alternate timeline version of this movie that's populated only by insane people. <laughs> it stars Mel Gibson, Sean Young, Nick Nolte, and Peter O'Toole. And everyone's drunk and racist and having a grand old time. So let's get to the movie proper. The movie begins with some echoey narration. By Sean Connery. Now, I was actually really relieved that there was narration because it opens with a smash cut to block of text. And I immediately thought, <laughs> fuck you, movie. You're not going to trick me into reading. <laughs> and luckily, the exact words that are on screen are read by Sean Connery in a bathroom. <laughs> the most echoey bathroom ever. And he explains that there are immortals. They exist. Don't worry about it. Yeah, don't yeah. ask questions. Yeah, don't worry about it. We then cut to Queen. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, if this opening credit sequence didn't win a lifetime achievement Oscar, there is no justice in this timeline. <laughs> the song, the Queen song, Princes of the Universe, opens the song, and like I get it, Queen did the movie. I mean, they did Flash Gordon, so for them, this is kind of like next step. You know sure. what I mean? And I guess it's I, a step down. They went from masters of the universe to princes of the universe. <laughs> this was clearly their B side that they couldn't work in. I will say this: the Queen songs are the best part of this movie, oh, hands down. Man, they come fast and furious. There's so many of them. There's just like clips of them playing for no reason in parts of the movie, just because they recorded it. Really, though, if Queen songs filled the time in the movie where Queen songs don't play, the movie would make a lot more sense. That's yeah, true. that's absolutely true. So then, after the opening credits, we are treated to the sexiest wrestling match of all oh, time. Oh, yeah. Three blonde, mop-topped wizards of wrestlers. <laughs> Just gyrating and touching themselves inappropriately. They have Confederate flag uh, entrance gear, capes, and that. Made entirely of glitter. <laughs> is mostly just an excuse to show you pretty much a band of truckers as the audience for this wrestling yeah. match. They're pretty much the same extras there that are there for the uh, end of the over the top. Oh, yeah. yeah that's exactly it's what it all is. all the same people. It's just crazy, angry rednecks who want blood. And what's really great about it is it takes place in Madison Square Garden and I guess it happened like really last minute because all they built was the wrestling ring done (laughs) standing room only for the rest of Madison Square Garden no seats no benches or bleachers until you get to the balcony and who's in the balcony but our star of the movie Connor McLeod played by the inimitable 
Christopher Lambert. And he is purposefully the only one not enjoying the shit <laughs> out of this wrestling match. The crowd is going nuts. They're for going this. ape shit. They're literally screaming, kill him! <laughs> Beat him to death! But sensitive Christopher Lambert sheds a single tear like the Native American did because you littered. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, it's 1500 Scotland? Yeah, 1500. Smash cut to 1500 <laughs> Scotland. And people yelling, MacLeod! <laughs> What's great is there's a nice Scottish woman to look directly into the camera. Or no, it's the uh, the priest. Who yeah, the priest. <laughs> the priest looks directly into the camera. Well, it's 1583. Let's Later go to this battle. <laughs> As if that was the thing we were confused about. And that's the whole opening scene of the movie. He's in the wrestling ring. Then he's in Scotland. And then he's leaving the wrestling ring for some reason. And then it's in Scotland. And then he's in a parking garage. Scotland. And then he's fighting an old man with a sword for some reason. <laughs> Scotland. Backflips. Scotland. Head cut off. Scotland. Electricity. <laughs> this movie makes absolutely no sense visually. It's just... In, I mean, it's a handsome movie. It's a very well-shot movie. Oh, yeah. But it is just all over the place. I know usually we talk about montages on the show. We kind of keep track of the montages. This whole movie is one <laughs> giant montage. Almost no shot is longer than five seconds. <laughs> no scene of dialogue is longer than ten lines. Yeah, no. absolutely not. So, Connor McCloud gets into a fight in this parking garage with... An unidentified old man who is... Has a George assume, Jones haircut and George Jones glasses. He looks almost exactly like uh, Principal Rooney from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, <laughs> but in like an Agent Mulder suit. Yeah. And for inexplicable reasons, he has an incredibly ornate Renaissance-era Scottish sword, complete with the little part on the end that you can use to uh, disarm people. Oh, yeah. 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 He also does Mary Lou Retton backflips all over the place. All well, over the what place. What I love is he disarms Connor McLeod and then he backflips three or four times in a row to gain some distance. Then he runs. Then they cut back to him and he's backflipping again. <laughs> when I was watching this, I thought I thought he was fighting two different guys. Because, like, he's running, he's backflipping, running, backflipping. It just didn't make any sense. Well, that's, see, here's the question. Is he running to regain stamina for backflipping or backflipping <laughs> to regain stamina for running? Everyone knows the most efficient line between you and your opponent is a series of backflips. That's absolutely the case. Always has been. And they milk this fight in a parking garage for all of the environmental damage it's worth. <laughs> yeah. They jump onto the hoods of cars and use it like their Cloud City walkway of fighting. Oh, yeah. It won't it's play. like they're playing the floor is lava. <laughs> People get thrown into windshields. At one point, the fire hoses come yeah. off. The sprinkler system goes off. <laughs> so it's raining inside, so it looks extra cool. And the fight eventually ends with Connor McCloud decapitating the old man, and then he quickens. He experiences a quickening. Yeah, he pours the Nestle's quick into the cold milk. He shakes it up for a little bit. And, and then, then he there's gets a the lightning power. storm of epic proportions. Yeah. Sure. And then the body floats and he floats and all the cars turn on and shake and drive forward. They shake and they drive forward and they all seem to expel their fluids as if they're urinating out yeah. of fear. <laughs> 
cars are really weirdly personified in this movie. They're people. They are people. Later you will see a car getting decapitated. That's true. That is true. I don't know if you know this, but Highlander is actually a prequel to Pixar's Cars. (laughs) So, Connor kills this man, and then just runs away. Well, first he hides his sword in one of the, like, light grates that's hanging from the ceiling. A hanging light cage or something. Just sort of tosses his sword up there, runs to go get in his very awesome convertible. And then back to Scotland! (laughs) (laughs) This entire time, not five seconds are allowed to pass in any one time frame before it cuts back to the other one. So in... Ancient Scotland, the MacLeods are are gearing up to do battle with a rival Scottish clan. The Frasers. (laughs) Frasers. I just fucking noticed that. Why were we not making Fraser jokes this whole time? Alright, guys. Wait, wait, hold on, John. Hold on, John. Hold on. I'm listening. He's got it, people. Give me a trophy! So the leader uh, of the, the Fraser clan uh, is played by Clancy Brown, and he is the Kurgan. And he wears a, a suit of armor made out of bones and a skull of an indiscriminate animal. Oh, my God. No idea what that animal was. It is It is the sleeve jacket for the greatest unreleased Megadeth album <laughs> ever. It is incredible. And whenever he is in frame, when it's just the battle scene, there's, you know, the typical sort of, you know, drums and bagpipes. But anytime Clancy Brown is on screen, they add a... Just the sweetest <laughs> metal they can't buy just riffs <laughs> so there's a big fight and the Kurgan makes sure to tell everybody hey Connor is mine so Connor is wandering through the fight trying to get involved and literally people are running away from him and he actually says nobody will fight me <laughs> as if his feelings are being hurt quite hurt Quite hurt. Why won't you fight me? No, it's picking me for kickball. It literally is like he's running out into recess and everyone is fleeing from him and he can't understand why. <laughs> but he will eventually come across the Kurgan. And the Kurgan will, without very much effort at all, bury a sword in his chest. Yeah. Yeah. It you is said, a very one-sided fight. They spend a lot of time setting up fight this battle. Fight is a strong word for it. Yeah, it's definitely just a stabbing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a guy in a horse stabbing a poor idiot. Now, it will yeah. it will not make any sense that he just stabs him when we learn more about this movie. But he stabs him in the side for an unexplained reason well, and then is tackled <laughs> by the rugby team that is waiting on the sidelines. And they're able to drag Connor away because he wants to kill Connor. Right. Yeah. He's going in for the headshot. Yeah. And then there's like the long night where Connor's probably dying of his wound, which has now migrated from the side of his chest to the front of his chest. Yeah. And he's laying on that very same table that dead Braveheart will lay on. Or no, dead Braveheart's dad will lay on early in Braveheart. He's wearing the same clothes. Scottish death is pretty much held pretty traditional from 1985 to 1995. <laughs> and his, his his girlfriend, his wife, his lady friend, his side piece, I don't know. They never really explain who she is. We don't yeah. know their relationship other than he, she wants to make sure that his fellow clansmen will bring back his penis in one piece. <laughs> yeah. That's absolutely true. There's a very clear joke about <laughs> her specifically wanting his penis back. 
And he is on the verge of death. She's crying. His kinsman, she's like, he's a Highlander. Don't cry. Get out of here, woman. Right. How dare you show basic human emotions? This is Scotland. This movie is really weirdly sexist. When there's just a woman just... And by herself doing a scene, the movie is 100% on her side. She's getting shit done in a city full of scum. But then anytime a woman shares the screen with a man, she is immediately put down. (laughs) She is invariably told to shut up. (laughs) And she is definitely brought up that she's showing way too much emotion. Right. (laughs) There's at least like five times in this movie where a woman is just told to shut (laughs) up. And that woman is 100% of the time acting incredibly rationally. (laughs) Yes. Asking questions that a normal person would require answers for. Showing sadness at these life-changing events. Hey, John, shut up. Ah, <laughs> you got me. <laughs> Cut back to parking garage. Connor McCloud drives away in his sweet sports car. And oh no, police. Like all the police. There are yeah. like 30 police cars. They all have our outside weapons drawn. <laughs> and he tries to fight them with his hands. <laughs> back to Scotland. Connor McLeod's alive. And everyone seems real pissed off yeah, about it. Yeah, I mean, it. this is the 1500s, so clearly he's got the devil inside. Yeah, he is in league with Lucifer. And so he is tied to an ox yoke and then uh, <laughs> driven out of town while people kick him and throw things at him and throw him in it's the a mud. Very, yeah, it's a very Mad Max getting kicked out of barter town yeah, kind of sure. thing. You imagine it's like being run out of town on a rail, but they didn't really have railroads there. They also were very specifically going to burn him. Yeah, well, he was a wit. Yeah, true. yeah, they wanted to burn him, especially his lady friend slash wife, girlfriend, side piece, whatever, yeah. wants him burnt, demands he's burnt, but good old Ginger Angus just says, oh no, my. we'll banish him, but we're not going to burn him. And she gets so mad. <laughs> you have to understand, these are the most Scottish people to ever be burned. The priest has a knife and stabs people with it. Like, these people are Scottish. When she when she gets told that they're not going to burn him, she throws herself Towards him, like Maury just told her, he's not the father. <laughs> she freaks out. Cut back to Connor McLeod in police custody, getting interrogated. In the most just bizarre interrogation, because the police have discovered the decapitated corpse, that I guess the quickening didn't destroy the body. Yeah, the no, quickening no, it doesn't destroy the body. Yeah, sure. it just sucks out its electricity. Let's not try to get too deep in the medicine. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. (laughs) The movie clearly doesn't want you to think about any of this. It's moving way too fast. He's being interrogated, and theories are bandied about as to why he's... they're, They're not so much asking him questions as they're saying, well, you're an antiques dealer, so you must have argued over the price of this sword and decapitated him, right? Right? I don't know. You tell me. You're a homosexual with a foreign accent. (laughs) Clearly, you tried to get him to blow you, and then when he did or didn't, and you didn't pay him, you killed him. (laughs) Right? And his response is, maybe they didn't like the wrestling match, (laughs) so he killed himself. It's like the world's worst accusing parlor scene from an old Agatha Christie (laughs) novel. And at one point, 
point, he will punch a cop in the face right yeah. there in the he office. To be fair, that cop was really homophobic. Now, now <laughs> it was is, not okay. This brings about my favorite part of this movie, is despite the fact that he punched a cop while he was getting arrested, and he's punched a cop in the interrogation chamber, Connor McCloud decides that he's pretty much done here and stands up and walks the fuck right out of the That's police true. office. They he, never read him his Miranda rights, so the arrest didn't count. They had to let him go. No, the best part is, like, we were too busy laughing at the ridiculousness of the scene, but I, I was watching the beginning the other day, and actually what happens is he says, he gets up and starts walking out and says, am I under arrest? And they go, well, not yet, but he's like, then goodbye, and just walks out. Fun fact, if you don't let a cop finish his sentence, it doesn't count. That's, that's right, that's, that's absolutely true. true. Please use that to defend yourself in a court of law, <laughs> listener. So back to Scotland. Back to Scotland! Where, where our friend Connor has set up a nice-looking, looking castle yep. with a new side piece. Or they wife, or girlfriend, or what, whatever. He is definitely living... chickens. Yeah, he is living the Scottish dream in this. He's got a stable with two horses, a nice-looking wife... A very well mortgaged castle. He's got some cows, some chickens. Yeah, yeah he's and he little... is banging at a picnic under a rock. What's wonderful Win. is that they are both fully clothed for this very yes. tasteful sex scene. Very <laughs> tasteful. And at this point, we've all been waiting for it. Sean Connery will arrive. <laughs> By leaping over their heads so we can make sure the first thing we see of him isn't his face, it's his horse's genitals. <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing you have to understand about this movie is anytime we say, and then this person comes in or this scene happens... Things don't enter the frame in this movie. They explode <laughs> into or out of the frame as if the movie is getting bored with itself. And it's just, hey, is there any way a horse genital can just explode into frame? And then the movie very enthusiastically answers its own question with a resounding yes. <laughs> and we are introduced to Sean Connery's character, Juan oh Carlos God. Villalobos Ramirez. The one goddamn movie that Sean Connery's <laughs> Scottish accent would make any sense in, and he plays a Spaniard. Oh, he's not a, he's Spaniard. Not a Spaniard. We find out that he's an Egyptian <laughs> from like 800 BC, who then at some point came under the employ of the king of, of Spain, but now he's in Scotland, and he's riding around wearing like peacock well, what's, what's great about Sean Connery's characters, they really try to maximize the amount of Sean Connery that they get for their money. So all of his dialogue is exposition about what he has done throughout his life. <laughs> we learn more about Sean Connery from Sean Connery <laughs> than any other character in this movie. Oh, yeah. He's there specifically to say, these are the rules of being a Highlander. Also, I lived here. I had a Japanese wife. She died. I was very sad. <laughs> You're a crappy swordsman. You can't have a wife. That's it. That's He's just there to like layer on exposition and to be a charming rogue. And to just uh, tell anecdotes about his many years of being a ladies' man. Roses clenched in teeth abound when Sean Connery's on the town. And this will also bring us our biggest meta problem, I think, in the whole series. One of the things that Sean Connery will explain to us about the Highlander and about the Immortals is that there can be only one. 
So why is Sean Connery here in Scotland playing Yoda to some schmuck he could handily kill? Right. And will have to kill eventually at some point anyway. Sure. So the basic rules of the immortals are laid out as this. These are the immortals. They exist because they're born different. That's as much as we get for right. that. Yep. We couldn't get the rights to the X-Men, so yep. we've created the Highlanders. <laughs> and they all can sense each other, kind of. And the whole point is that soon there will be only a few of them left, and they will all be drawn to one place for what's called the Gathering. I assume of the Juggalos. <laughs> <laughs> and there can be only one so once one Highlander or one immortal quickens all the other immortals, he gains the prize. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not explained until the very end of the movie. Until some some narration was tacked on at the last minute. <laughs> and unfortunately, for the record, the prize is essentially a gender-blind version of the power that Mel Gibson had in What Women Want. <laughs> Yeah, he can see the thoughts and dreams of all people. <laughs> Which, to me, sounds like he's just taken a lot of LSD. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, back to New York, where, for inexplicable reasons, uh, the NYPD has on retainer an incredibly impressive metallurgist historian. Slash forensic scientist. scientist. <laughs> right. And she has discovered from shards in the wall that whoever cut this guy's head off has a sword that shouldn't even exist. Yeah, it's a Japanese blade that has been folded 400 times, and they didn't make this in Japan until centuries after the carbon dating on this blade <laughs> says it was made. She likens it later in the movie as if it's finding a 747 a thousand years before the Wright brothers. I say it's more like finding a boring piece of sword. <laughs> It's not impressive at all. And this is our female lead, Brenda, played by Roxanne Hart. Uh, Could have been Diane Lane, guys. Oh, man, what a bummer. Yeah. I will say that Roxanne Hart definitely put on her work boots for this. She game. did. She, she did. She does some acting. She She's probably, her and Connery are the only two doing, like, acting, acting. Clancy Brown's not acting so much as he is having the time of his life. <laughs> oh, he is living life to the hilt and enjoying every second of Whoa, it. Whoa, the sword hilt? Boom! We're going to work in every terrible joke we can. <laughs> Tear it down, guys. I'm the worst. <laughs> uh, so at this point, then we kind of go back to Scotland, and we're in Scotland for a long time. And this is the sort of the only time we delineate from the regular movie where we have sort of a sub-montage. Yeah. It's the sub-training montage <laughs> as part of the giant montage of the film <laughs> where, yeah, Sean Connery teaches the Highlander how to sword fight. Sure, but it's clearly... And to run fast. And to run faster than a, a galloping horse. Right. Yeah. On the beach, it is clearly a, it, it is a sub-montage within a montage of them training and also falling in love. A yeah, I think bit, it's fair to say. There is a little bit of homoeroticism in between Ramirez and McLeod. They definitely have a, uh, a rapport with one another. I'm just saying I would not have been surprised. This montage is the shirtless volleyball scene from Top Gun played out in the Scottish <laughs> Highlands with swords. That's <laughs> what it is. All we're missing, all we're missing is the Kenny Loggins, you know, 
the Kenny Loggins sweet James behind it. <laughs> a lot of things happen. It's kind of hard to keep track of this movie. It really it's kind of cutting back and forth. The Kurgan comes for for Ramirez at McLeod's castle. Well, he comes from McLeod, but Ramirez is there alone with McLeod's wife telling her stories about all the women he's had sex with. Yep. And then she says, oh, do you want more wine? And he's, yes, please. Oh, Let's gosh. get shit-faced. <laughs> like, it's it's a little uncomfortable. Like, he's trying to seduce McLeod's wife so he can have McLeod to himself. <laughs> <laughs> Now, previously, Sean Connery did tell McLeod to specifically leave his wife as soon as possible. Yeah. Ah, I thought for sure he was going to kill her. Yeah. He had his sword on the table yeah. as he was telling her a story about this woman that he had bedded. And I was like, this ends with him cutting her head off. Yeah. And then saying, uh, the Kurgan killed him. <laughs> and then Connor and him continued training throughout the countryside. But instead, the Kurgan shows up at the castle and they commence the sword fight. And the best part about this is every time that their swords hit the wall of the castle, whole chunks of that wall will fly, not outward, inward. <laughs> not only can swords knock castle walls down, they do it in reverse physics. It's and astounding. And there's like a lightning storm happening at the same time? Yeah. That I mean, is tearing down chunks of the castle? It's like this movie saw Star Wars and was like, oh, that's what swords are. Not saw lightsabers and thought that's what swords are. Saw all of Star Wars and thought, oh, that's what swords do. They blow up anything and everything and they have jaunty banter. I, I guarantee you that whole scene came about because somebody drew a picture of just a staircase leading to nowhere in the middle of a storm and they're like, how do we get to this? Yes. Yeah. What if their swords bump into the wall and the wall explodes? Done! <laughs> More cocaine for everybody! I think it's fair to say that the co-director of this movie is cocaine. <laughs> easy. Easy. The castle explodes, and the Kurgan murders Sean Connery, cuts his head off, and quickens his body, takes his power. So we move back to New York, and we find out that McLeod, who's now living in the future under the name Russell Nash, he's an antiques dealer, and he's got this sweet antique shop, all of his swords and martial weapons and ski boots from throughout the years. And he has a secretary that he rescued from World War II. Oh, yeah, he, the Highlander, highlanded oh, the, through World well, War II. In the best scene transition in cinema history. <laughs> they are on screen together for about two seconds. He's looking out this giant window. She walks up to him and just says, hey, you're looking kind of sad. You always look sad as long as I can remember. Scene then explodes. <laughs> Actually explodes. Like shards of the scene come careening <laughs> at you like a 3D movie from the 50s. And we now have Lambert running from bombs and tanks, apparently in France. Let's yeah. just guess. Yeah, just wandering through France. And he's wearing what used to be a tuxedo. <laughs> like he's coming from a game of Baccarat and just <laughs> wandered into World War II. <laughs> and he is immediately beset by a Nazi. A. <laughs> no, it's definitely Colonel Clink from Hogan's Heroes. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure he has the monocle, too. <laughs> Who then guns him down. Yeah, guns him down, and he just get like, he just looks at the girl, and she's like, you're not dead. And he's like, 
Uh, no, I guess I'm not. No, well, no, she asks, why aren't you dead? <laughs> Which is a shitty thing to ask someone who just took a bullet for you. Like several bullets, many bullets. Yeah. He then murders the Nazi, as frankly he should have. Yeah. Oh, he's got a great one-liner, though, where the, the German says something in German, and he says, whatever you say, Charlie, and then <laughs> blows him away. And he says it just like that, too, because didn't he work with a dialect coach to get just... Foreign accent. Yes, a non-specific <laughs> foreign accent. They had no idea he couldn't speak English. <laughs> he was oh. just in the room nodding to be polite, and before he knew it, he was starring in Highlander. Never mind the fact that he's got the most pronounced brow shelf in, like, film history. Oh, yeah. And his hair is weirdly, like, he's got bangs to cover up that he's got, like, a nine head. <laughs> <laughs> He's got these deep-set Frankenstein monster eyes. Yeah. He's a creepy-looking dude. He really is. No one explained to him that he was playing a hero, so he will say everything either sad or menacing, <laughs> even in a date scene. <laughs> he, he has a date with Brenda, the forensic scientist slash uh, ancient metallurgy expert, at her apartment. Now, her apartment is one whole floor of an apartment building. Yeah, it is huge. It is gigantic because in 1986, forensic science paid, son. Yeah, man. It was a new field. There were only four forensic scientists in the world. They could charge whatever they wanted. She has antique swords all over the wall and books and all these other things. And she hides like a 38 snub nose in like a little box. And she's going to tape record McLeod when he comes over for their date. What's great is she puts this big like 1980s Sony tape deck tape recorder inside of an automatic harpsichord as the perfect hiding place. Surely this will get the clearest audio signal (laughs) for our entire conversation where I guess I'm going to trick him into, you know, admitting that he's a murderer? Yeah! Like, her plan is really unclear. And then his plan is even more unclear. He shows up with a, a bottle of wine... Oh, no, that a has been of, wrapped. A bottle oh, of Hennessy. Oh, yeah. yeah, of Hennessy. A Hennessy brandy and that's been wrapped, but only from, like, the top. He just slips the wrapping paper Well, he it. wraps it, presumably, to give to her as a gift so that she can unwrap it and have, like, Christmas in July. But then she goes into another room because she forgot her earrings and he just takes the wrapping paper off while she's gone. He slips it off like it's a hat. Like, why <laughs> did you do any of that? He pours her the Hennessy, and he explains to her that uh, this Hennessy, it's from 1783, and goes and starts listing all of these things that happened in 1783. Like an almanac. He smells the cognac, and he just spouts off facts. And then he gives gives her her other present. She asks if she can open it, and he's like, if that's what you want. (laughs) She opens it and it's her book that she wrote, and then she like throws it at him. She's incredibly angry. You bastard, she says. Because she has probably hundreds of copies of that book already. If there's one thing she doesn't need, it's another copy of her own book. (laughs) But this is by way of expressing that he knows that she's not really interested in his penis. She's trying to trick him into some sort of cop ploy. Yeah, there is there is a bald police officer in a car outside of her apartment. Also unexplained what his part in this plan is. Uh, it's not he's not part of the plan. They're there separately. 
spying on her because they know she's spying on him. Also, that's the last time those cops show up. Yeah. <laughs> We're over and done with cops in this movie. <laughs> so they have their little date, sort of, and then he leaves and he's attacked by... I, I can't even remember. It's just so, all yeah, no, over the place. Right, yeah. he's attacked by the Corrigan at this point. Yes, the Corrigan, yeah, right. Uh, now, the Corrigan is wearing Mad Max's leather jumpsuit, yeah. but with yeah. random pieces of it torn off. Yeah, but he's the a... sleeve is completely torn off and replaced with just a triangle of chainmail on his bicep. Yeah. yeah, he's very much like 80s leather daddy. Yeah. And then there's a weird scene where Connor runs into another immortal... Uh, a gentleman who isn't even given a name, but he offers him a flask on this bridge, and... And he says, like, hey, we should catch up, because we're old friends. Sure thing, movie, we'll take your word for it. And then it all of a sudden it cuts to them talking... Well, because he said that his friend says, uh, hey, let's go out for a pint, and it's shot from behind, so you don't see Lambert's face, but Lambert starts clapping and puts his arm around yeah. him, as if to say, yes, let's go for this pint, but... The voiceover is like, no, no, I can't go for a pint. <laughs> it is really bizarre. And you think that you might see them go for a pint, but you don't. No, no. Instead, the next thing you see is this guy fighting with Clancy Brown. Because he's, no, the, the next thing you see is the flashback to the yeah. French Revolution. Oh, the, the where he's fighting because they say, like, remember the last time you had a pint? And then it cuts to Christopher Lambert in a sword duel with a French uh, aristocrat. Yeah, an effete Frenchman. Which raises the question, how did his friend know about this fight if he wasn't there? He was not there. (laughs) He was absolutely not there. And it's at this point that the movie takes this weird turn into like a like a five minute Monty Python sketch. Yeah, the noble <laughs> aristocrat keeps stabbing Christopher Lambert, and he keeps playing dead for like a second to trick him for no reason, and gets and up laughing, yeah, and gets back up, gets stabbed again. Each time the nobleman stabs Christopher Lambert, his servant tries to kiss the nobleman. Because <laughs> I guess that's the rule in France. And then, finally, the Highlander just runs away. Well, the Highlander finally apologizes to the slight <laughs> that led to the duel. Yeah. And I guess that's enough for this yeah. French nobleman because he lets him go. Off. And his, his shitty assistant runs up with two pistols and says, Shoot him in the back of the head while he's running. Shoot him in the back of the head. And now the nobleman, bound by his code of honor, may not shoot anyone in the back of the head. Instead, he turns his pistol onto his servant. His servant turns and runs and promptly gets shot by the nobleman square in the ass. He gets shot right in the buttocks. <laughs> in a way that looks like it may have been as much pleasurable as it was. He definitely, he de- as he's going down, like, grabs Ooh. his rear end and gives a, ooh, yeah, he totally does. <laughs> Because, again, this was the 80s. Yep. We're sorry. Best we don't dwell on this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we we cut to the, the, the other immortal gets murdered by the Kurgan, and a weird, like, Nazi guy, uh, not Nazi, a weird Marine guy comes out and, like, pumps the Kurgan full of Uzi bullets. Yeah, giving him street justice. And the Kurgan just sticks him with a sword, lifts him up, quickens the other guy, and then throws him away, steals... 
Although before he does that, after he quickens, it is the most explosions I have seen in a very long time. The sewer explodes no less than four times with grates and manhole covers soaring into the air. What are they keeping in New York sewers? Actual flames come blowing up out of the sewers. And both the, the surrounding buildings, all the windows blow out. There's glass everywhere, fire, smoke. He strides over to this car that had pulled over to gawk. <laughs> Cuts the hood off the car. Decapitates the car, presumably to gain its power. It's like he's taking the top off a can of Spam. <laughs> he throws the old man out of the car, sits down, looks at the old lady and goes, Mom? <laughs> and then just drives oh away. God. You got. You have to understand. This was 1987, so this is 86. Years, 86. So this predates Jack Nicholson's turn as the Joker, but it is a thousand percent Jack Nicholson oh, as the yeah. Joker in Batman 89. Oh yeah. The only thing that's missing is his terrible Jack Palance impression. Yeah. And Prince. Oh you. Instead, it is replaced with him licking anything he possibly can. (laughs) Or just going (laughs) to people, just shaking his tongue at people. And then at some point, I don't even remember how it got to it, but Brenda, Brenda and Highlander. Uh, make out and then make love like in the dark in the shadow but if I remember correctly like, well, no, the no, 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 no. what happens is uh, uh, handwriting experts manage to put yes. together that uh, for whatever reason Connor McCloud has been signing several different names as he passed his fortune right. back and forth over the years and different thankfully identities. the police department has been keeping track of every signature from 1983 Definitely. to the present uh, Digi- every document everyone but digitizing each of these documents yes. as well so that they're all in the computer. Which is handy. One computer that clearly, it's like a Coleco. It runs on cassette tape, I guarantee it. In any case, he shows Brenda that uh, all of these signatures match up. She goes to his antique shop and says, hey, I'm looking for a 600-year-old dead guy. And then he decides it's time to tell her the truth. So he takes her down into his danger room. He puts a knife in her hand. He stabs himself. That's right. He falls to the ground, crumpled over, bleeding out. It blood in his hand is clearly not going to die. He looks at her. She looks at him. And sparks do fly. She touches her face. He touches his face. Hair gets brushed back. <laughs> and then we're just looking at ass. <laughs> they are they are deeply in plot love at this point. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. They they have a very sensual sexy scene in between between themselves set to a nice little queen power ballad yep uh and oh there's one thing we totally miss though this is not too long after we find out that connor mcleod lived a very long life with his uh, second wife heather or whatever after the kurgan in old timey scotland days yeah and he she eventually dies of old age he throws her body off a a cliff As is the Scottish way. (laughs) But not before she tells him to light a candle for him every year. Yeah, Yeah. light a candle for her every year on her birthday. Cut to, after they make love, he goes to church to light a candle for his old wife's birthday. And he sits down and he prays to his old dead wife. Enter the Kurgan! (laughs) 
Now you may be thinking, oh man, it's on, but no, uh, a Highlander is strictly bound by duty law not to fight on any holy ground. Despite the fact that the Spaniard tells us that he's born several hundred years BC in Egypt, the immortals, they hold the Christian law. Well, because they found the one true religion, and (laughs) they've been around long enough to know that it's right. (laughs) The Kurgan enters the church, walks upon an altar of candles, and just, like, smacks them out like it's a series of babies that have misbehaved. (laughs) It's the equivalent of, again, to compare it back to Nicholson's Joker, it is the the museum scene in Batman. It is the, like... Let's throw a camera on him, tell him he can do whatever he wants, and print the results. He just walks through and he makes, like, tongue faces at nuns. He licks a priest. He licks a priest's <laughs> hand. He threatens Connor but tells him, they're not going to fight here, but I am going to kill you. Yeah, oh my god. And then after Connor leaves, he the, the Corrigan starts putting his boots up on the pews <laughs> and just loudly disrespecting. He interrupts choir practice. And he starts screaming. He says the greatest line in the movie. Oh, his exit line is just truly amazing. <laughs> I've got something to say. Better to burn out than to fade away. And then he does a little Michael Jackson twirl. <laughs> Uh, claps his hands like he believes in Tinkerbell and then leaves. Walks out the door. Out he goes. And off he goes to kidnap Brenda. He just puts her in the passenger seat of a car, says, You ever play chicken? And then proceeds to go on the just most enjoyable <laughs> vehicular rampage ever committed to he, film. He, he just plays real-life GTA. Yeah. yeah. That's all he does. He's mowing down pedestrians. He's going the wrong way. He's causing all the accidents. And the whole time he is, like, cartoonishly covering his eyes and, yes. and waving his... Just waving his arms around like a lunatic. He starts just honking the horn, even though the horn doesn't work. He's just smacking the steering wheel the whole time. He starts running over pedestrians, just cackling like a lunatic. And then this sets up our our final confrontation, finally, between the Kurgan and Connor McLeod. No, what's fascinating about this is that it's an action sequence where everything around them is the action set piece. Their sword fight is actually really boring. Yeah. Yes. But electric wires are exploding. The water tower on top of the building collapses down and soaks everyone waist Signs deep in this dirty water. They fall through a ceiling window into an empty warehouse floor below. Yeah. <laughs> Completely empty. It's not even been squatted in. Like, there's no garbage or anything. It's the world's largest dance studio is what it is. It's just a shiny floor and a giant, huge city block of windows looking out into into the distance. They are Chekhov's windows. They are shown prominently and they will explode. And despite being about a 20-foot drop, the Highlander lives fine, as you would imagine. The other immortal, the Kurgan, lives fine, as you would imagine. But somehow Brenda manages to slip through that window and is also fine. She's totally alright. She's just along for the ride. (laughs) Yeah, and she's just trying to, like, pick the lock on a door to get out while they fight. 
And then the Kurgan gets the upper hand against Connor and he's about to kill him. And then she comes and hits him with a pipe and the Kurgan just laughs. And then somehow that gives Connor the power to defeat him. Right. Now, it's at this point that he, the Kurgan is about to kill Brenda, but uh, Connor jumps in with his sword and protects her at the last minute. And this is where the movie thinks that it's over. Yeah, all of a sudden the music <laughs> swells and it becomes There's crazy trumpets. triumphant. It's trumpets and strings and it's bombast and it's all major key. It's definite, like, this is the hero's theme. The hero's going to sure. win. There's another three minutes of fight left. <laughs> and, like, the camera keeps pulling out as if it's done and but then it's going not. back in. <laughs> And then oh. and the the music just keeps crescendoing to this fever pitch oh. of like this is like John Williams on cocaine. <laughs> and the and the sword fight, you're right. It's the most boring sword it's fight. It's so basic. There's there's literally only three moves. There's overhand chop to the right shoulder, overhand chop to the left shoulder, thrust. <laughs> That's it. But then the weirdest thing happens because they do that old trope where they run at each other really fast, and then there's a brief pause where you don't know who did what to who. And then suddenly the Corrigan's head starts falling off, and it is at this point that they have run out of triumphant music. <laughs> because they have been crescendoing so hard for so long that they're just done. So the actual climax of this movie is in a really awkward silence. Yeah. Aside from the sound of a cartoon escaping from his neck. Yeah. And this is the ultimate quickening. Essentially, at this point, uh, the Kurgan's head falls off, and out of his body are all of the ghosts from that part of Fantasia, the Night on Balls Mountain. <laughs> They all rise up, and uh, Connor starts to float, and they whip through his body several times. And and they keep shouts, I know everything. (laughs) I am everything. Well, like cartoon skeleton wolves and (laughs) cartoon skeleton dragons just fly in and out of him. Oh, man. And it zooms into his eye, which then zooms into his eye like a mirror looking into a mirror. Yeah, just into his eye. Then 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 to a marble bust of his head that explodes. (laughs) (laughs) And then he drops to the ground. All the windows in the place explode. And then that's the end of the movie. Smash cut to Sean Connery voiceover explaining what the hell just happened. He got the prize. And the prize is you become Mel Gibson and What Women Want. You become Professor X, but with walking powers. You know everything and you get a hot lady to come with you into the distance and you live forever and also we contradict everything we said early in the movie because now we can fall in love and we can have children despite the fact that an hour ago Sean Connery was like you shouldn't have a wife you shouldn't have kids but now (laughs) because you can't have kids if you're immortal but now the prize makes it so you can yeah I guess it's deeply confusing which if that was me I mean if I was the immortal and I had the prize and I could sire children I would sire a whole roster of Oh, of children. Sure. I have a whole army. Right. I'd be unstoppable. <laughs> I'd be installing banana republics all over the place. Well, what's great Dingus Mark, everybody. One of the last lines in the movie is Christopher Lambert saying, I know you're thinking I can't love you, but I can. <laughs> Iris out. Credits. 
gentlemen, it is that time for bullet points. Bullet points! We're going to start off bullet points the only way we know how, with war crimes. War crimes. John, how many war crimes in this movie? I'm going to say this felt really light on war crimes. It really did, actually. Um, Well, actually, you know what? This movie has the ultimate war crime. The reign of the Third Reich. That's true. There's (laughs) definitely a Nazi in this movie, and that certainly is a war crime. Yep, yeah. And I'm pretty sure, yeah, they're in Nazi-occupied France. Yes. So I'm going to say this had the biggest war crime. Patrick, war crimes? You know, several of those quickenings for me felt like detonations of EMPs in civilian territory. Sure, (laughs) yeah. I mean, for as much conspiracy as we talk about those these days, I feel like to have three or four in 80s New York is is probably a war crime. Yeah, each time a quickening happens, electronics go haywire and explode and shut down. So for sure, that is definitely a war crime. The only war crime I can think of is that this movie gave Christopher Lambert a career <laughs> that after this he went on to be Raiden in Mortal Kombat oh, yeah. or Beowulf in the terrible late 90s sci-fi future version of Beowulf. That's my war crime, is that those things happened. Moving on to Best Kill. Best Kill. Patrick, Best Kill. I'm going to have to go with uh, the death of the Spaniard at the end of the weird uh, modernist art stairs that have no supports. <laughs> There's lightning behind it everywhere, yeah. and he gets he's... stabbed in the back, and then he gets his head cut off. I yeah. think that I'm going to have to take that. When he's killed on the medieval uh, MC Escher stairs. Yeah, yeah, the stairs <laughs> to nowhere. John, best kill. So my best kill is going to be kind of a weird one. It's not going to be one of the main kills, but when Clancy Brown is taking his joyride through the streets of New York City, he runs over two pedestrians. <laughs> you don't see the point of impact. You see it from like a, a dash cam inside yeah. the car where the two pedestrians look both surprised, befuddled, and just a little like they're having a great time. Whoa! Whoa! Like they're going down a water slide. Right. It's like the picture that they take on the roller coaster when you're going down the hill. And of course, Clancy Brown's reaction is just this like mayhem of laughter. It is amazing. Uh, Mark, best kill. I have to give the best kill to Connor McLeod killing the Kurgan. Only because it leads to the awesome cartoons flying around (laughs) and possessing his body. The kill itself is kind of like you don't even really see it. They just go, huh, huh, and his head falls off. But the fact that it ends with a weird, like, overlaid Fritz Lang, (laughs) Felix the Cat-style crazy cartoon over this movie that up until then has at least tried to keep things kind of practical blows my mind. And so we shall move on to Body Count. Body Counts. John, what do you think the body count for this movie is? Uh, Let's see. So there's the Immortals, which I believe there were four Immortals in this movie. The two dead pedestrians. There's got to be some collateral damage from those quickenings. So I'm going to say about ten people died. Patrick. I'll take your ten. I'm going to raise you another good thirty for the whole, like, Scottish Fraser fight. And then I'm going to throw in another, uh, what's it, like, 17 million for World War II or whatever that was. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I'm going with 17 million in 10. <laughs> back of, no, wait, 40. In back, that's my back of the envelope. <laughs> well, the confirmed body count for the movie is 26. <laughs> so it's, it's right in the middle there, guys. Great job. Way to split the difference. Although, yeah. you know what? I, I can't believe I forgot to bring this up, but there's a uh, running bit throughout the entire movie where the newspaper headlines are yeah. very antagonistic yeah. towards the police. That's true. Try, the police are trying to solve the, the crime of the head taker? The head, the hunter? head, hunter. head hunter. Yeah. So And so there was one point where the score was very clearly laid out by the New York Post. Yeah. Headhunter 3... Police zero. <laughs> Which, you know, really, if you think about it, that's a that's a body count right there, man. Yeah. yeah. The, the New York Post put the city in the ground. <laughs> Score one for the Post. <laughs> Headhunter three, cop zero, Post one. <laughs> so there you go, ladies and gentlemen, somewhere between three and 17 million. <laughs> All right, finally, our last bullet point of the night. Is this an action movie? Is this an action movie? Patrick, is this an action movie? You know, I'm going no. I'm going that this is a music video with light action interludes. John, is this an action movie? I'm going to say that this is an action movie. Uh, The back half of it is definitely really slow. Uh, once the movie finally settles down and decides to tell a story, that's when it's at its most boring. Sure, an hour into the movie when right. it finally slows down. Uh, but I will say the action that it is in it, that first fight scene in the parking garage is incredible. Oh, yeah. So the action that is in it, it, that is, in it is of a quality that is frankly unmatched in the genre of immortal knife fighters. <laughs> True. This is the... This is the top of the pyramid of immortal knife fighter movie. So I'm going to say, yes, this is an action movie. I, I'm going to agree with you, John. I, I definitely think that this is an action movie. I think it's so relentlessly paced, especially that first hour, just cutting in between now in ancient Scotland and now in ancient Scotland and there's war and there's wrestling and there's sword fights and there's electricity and punching and cops like brutal cop brutality the cuts are aggressive just the way this movie is edited is very aggressive I felt threatened by the movie at some points like it was it was making me feel like less of a man this movie is like the grandfather of Michael Bay like this movie gave me to Michael Bay. Yeah, I'd agree with that. All right, so, John, your review of Highlander. Highlander is like an enthusiastic puppy that can't tell if it wants to go after the tennis ball or the stick that you just threw, and so instead it tells the story of a Scottish Highlander (laughs) who can live forever. I was going to give this four immortals, but there can be only one! (laughs) Nailed it! Patrick, your review of Highlander. You know, I think my favorite thing about this movie, and really, for what it really sums it up for me, is that all swords always spark, and that's what Highlander is for me. <laughs> the 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 constant sparking of a sword. <laughs> Can I tell you how they achieved the sparking of the oh, swords please. in this movie? They took the swords. They attached them to wires. They ran the wires through the actors' costumes. And then on the other end, they were attached to car batteries. (laughs) So it's actual live electricity just being hacked at each other. (laughs) Left and right. That sounds safe. So, 
uh, my review of Highlander is this is a weird, crazy person who wanders in off the street and doesn't have anything coherent to say, but what they're saying is still just so gosh darn interesting to watch. <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, I'm going to give it one quickening. <laughs> so I can take its power and make it mine! <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us this evening here on Body Counts and Beer. I am Mark Rosenthal. I am Patrick Bromley. And thanks to the training of Sean Connery, I am at last John Rooney. (laughs) There can be only one John Rooney, ladies and gentlemen. And it's me! (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) Thank you very much and good night. Body Counts and Beer is Patrick, the Sorcerer Bromley. John, Endgame Rooney, and Mark, the Quickening Rosenthal. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at BodyCountCast, email us at BodyCountsOfBeer at gmail.com, and of course, like, love, follow us on SoundCloud. Good night.